0: John 1:35 through 42. This is God's word. The next day again John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus and as he walked by and said, "Behold, the Lamb of God." The two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, "What are you seeking?" And they said to him, "Rabbi," which means teacher, "where are you staying?" You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Would
1: you bow your heads with me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this opportunity this morning to to really meet with Jesus. Lord, I pray that we heed his call on our lives this morning. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Have you ever felt called to something? Many in Colorado feel the call of the mountains. They love the awe and wonder that they inspire. They feel close to God when they're in the mountains. They feel called. Now, about this time every year, actually it's a little earlier than this time every year, I feel the call of golf. It's time for me to start playing golf again. Some feel called to certain kinds of work, whether it be teaching, medicine, uh, first responders and, of course, the ministry. For some of us, work is just a job, and that's okay. But there are those who feel they are called to their work. It is their vocation. Now, sometimes a calling isn't something you feel. It just is. If you are married, you are called to be a spouse. If you, are a, uh, if you have children, you are called to be a parent. There is no choice in these matters, they simply are. In our passage today, we're going to see an altogether different kind of call. A call to more than the wild, or to golf, or to work, or a role, but a call to eternal life. A call to a right relationship with God. Now as a reminder, as we heard in the very first uh, week on John, John's goal in writing this gospel is unique. If we think about the other three gospels, which are often referred to as the synoptic gospels, really what those, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, what they're doing is providing sort of a documentary of sorts of Jesus' life. They're documenting the the things that he did, the things that he said, people's reactions to them. John's purpose is altogether different. Now, what we have here in John's gospel is, is what S. Lewis Johnson calls a propaganda document. John wrote this gospel to bring about a a decision about who Jesus is. His goal, he explicitly states it in chapter 20, verse 30, and this is it. John says, I have written these words that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, And that by believing, you would have life in his name. That's the goal of the entire book, and we need to keep that at the forefront of our minds. Now, for our outline today, I've divided up our passage into the called and the caller. And you'll see we've got two subsections under the called. And the first is is Jesus calls Andrew and Peter. And the second is Jesus calls Philip and Nathaniel. And we'll finish with the caller. Now, I don't have any specific points of application necessarily in your outline this morning, but I trust that as we go along, that as you listen, and more importantly, as you engage with this text, that you will see and be stirred by what you read and hear. Now then, scene one, Jesus calls Andrew and Peter. Now, as a reminder in the previous passage, Jesus has just been baptized by John. John the Baptist, and rightly identified by John as the Lamb of God, even the Son of God. And now we have, now having been baptized, Jesus is ready to really begin his public ministry. So in verse 35, as we begin our passage, we see John standing with two of his disciples, and that it is, quote, the next day. Really what's happening is this is the third day in a four-day scene. That began back in verse 19 and will conclude in verse 51. Now, there are two disciples with John the Baptist. I want you to keep that in mind. We'll come back to that later. Verse 36, and he looked at Jesus, that is John the Baptist, as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. John sees Jesus and again calls him the Lamb of God. He had said that before earlier in the passage. Now, Lars helped us understand the depth of meaning of this name. It really is kind of an amalgamation, a composite of several different things. We think of the animals, and they may have even been lambs, that God slaughtered to make clothing for Adam and Eve after they had sinned against him and before he sent them out of the garden that they might be clothed. We think of the Passover lamb that each family sacrificed and whose blood They spread on the the lintel and the doorpost that the destroyer might pass over their house. We are reminded of the lamb's sacrifice for the whole nation of Israel, which did not take away sin but pointed to the one who would and could take away sin. We also think of Jesus in Revelation as the victorious lamb who sits on the throne, who hosts the marriage supper, who reigns in the new Jerusalem. Those are wonderful things, but to be fair to John the Baptist, I'm pretty sure he didn't have all these things in mind. The text here confines us to say that what John meant was mostly in the sense of Jesus being the sacrificial lamb. But John the apostle, the man who's writing this gospel, he had the benefit of seeing all of Jesus' life, his death and his resurrection. He had the benefit of actually seeing these other Gospels as they circulated around the New Testament church. And so it's important for us to note that John, the writer of this Gospel, chooses to emphasize this title for Jesus, that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Remember John's goal for this entire book, for the whole Gospel, that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing you might have life in his name. Let's go to verse 37. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Now, again, notice that there are two disciples. I'll ask you to just hold that for a minute, and we'll come back to it. Notice also that they heard John again profess that Jesus is the Lamb of God, but unlike yesterday, when they stayed with John, on this day they followed. One has to wonder what the intervening time must have been like between the day before when Jesus was baptized and John proclaimed him as the Lamb of God and the Son of God, and now, today, when they see him again. What was that time like? What did they talk about? What led them to this decision? I mean, these men had jobs and families and lives. Well, yesterday they weren't ready to go, but today, today they're ready at a minimum they included they concluded that they needed to investigate further and so they follow him in verse 38 we see Jesus turned and he saw them following and he said what are you seeking what are you seeking these are Jesus first recorded words in John's gospel now Jesus wasn't completely silent before this In Matthew 3, we see Jesus' dialogue with John the Baptist. And in Luke 3, Jesus prayed to the Father. But here in this gospel, in John's gospel, the first words of Jesus are this. What are you seeking? Now, I'm the kind of person that sort of operates at face value. If you tell me something, I'm more than likely to just take your word for it And then then I am to try and read into it, to try to discern any hidden hidden meaning that you might have with your words. Most of the time that serves me well, most of the time. it's It's why also on a handful of times that I've played poker, I stink. I mean, I can't read your body language. I don't know what your tells are. I'm taking things at prima facie, at face value. And at face value, this question, what are you seeking, is straightforward enough. Men, what are you looking for? But scratch just below the surface, and you find he's asking a lot more, a lot more than what they want. He's asking about their hearts, which is really the crux of the matter. He's asking about their motivation. What are you seeking? As is often the case, when you are not sure what to do next, the disciples respond to his question with a question. They say to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Is there a better way to deflect an uncomfortable question than to turn it around on the interrogator? What a great technique. It's like walking up on a kid with his hand in the cookie jar. Hey, hey Johnny, what are you doing there? Uh, I, I don't know, Dad. What are you doing? (laughs) Maybe the, the deflection back to Jesus was because they hadn't thought it through. What were they seeking? Friends, I have to ask to turn this question on us. What are we seeking? What are we seeking? I'm reminded of what Jesus said in Matthew 11, verses 7 through 9. He's talking about John the Baptist And he says this, as they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. Jesus has a way of asking searching questions. What are you seeking? Indeed, we must wrestle with this question from time to time, lest our affections and our desires become misaligned. What are you seeking? We settle for the good instead of the best. We substitute the creation for the creator. We believe comfort. And prosperity is what God desires for us. And so we seek it as if it is the kingdom. When the kingdom is so much greater. We would rather deny others than ourselves. What are we seeking? Let me make it a little more concrete. Why are you here this morning? Why did you come? Are you looking for comfort? Are you looking for community? Are you looking for a good feeling? Are you doing your duty so that you can feel good about yourself? Are you here to please your spouse? What are you seeking? If you have come for Jesus, what kind of life do you expect in Him? What are you seeking? Here's what Jesus says about those who want to be his disciples. They will deny themselves and take up their cross. They will surrender themselves daily to Jesus. They will lose their lives for Jesus' sake and for the Gospels. They will be persecuted because the servant is not greater than the master. They will value relationship with Jesus more than any other relationship, including husband, wife, mother, father, son, daughter. They will be viewed as radical by their neighbors, coworkers, and friends. They will not only fight against sin, but they will put sin to death. They will count all things as worthless, even garbage, compared to the infinite value of knowing Jesus. They will hunger and thirst for righteousness. They will not let go and let God, but instead they will regard personal holiness and the work of sanctification as of the utmost importance. They will have many tribulations before entering into his kingdom. That's a lot, and it's heavy. But I don't mean to weigh you down, and I don't mean to weigh you down, but we need to square up. We really need to square up with what Jesus says. We don't need to water it down. We just need to square up with it, straight up. Not what we want him to say or what others say about him, but what his word says about him. And so I ask again what are you seeking? Now, there's good news to this. It's not just all hard. We need to be reminded of the reward for those who do seek him. Those who seek Jesus for who he is, believe in him and obey his commands, will receive an eternal reward beyond measure. Beyond measure. Their life will be hidden with Christ and God. They will inherit eternal life. They were last in this life, but they will be first in the life to come. Whatever they gave up here in this life, they will receive a hundredfold in the life to come. They will be co-heirs with Christ. Listen to this. They will enjoy fellowship with God, unmarred by sin and rebellion. They will enjoy fellowship with each other, untainted by selfishness and pride and insecurity and ambition. Indeed, friends, when you seek Jesus Christ and him crucified, you will find him and his reward. I pray and I hope that you are here this morning because you seek Jesus. I pray that you are seeking his kingdom first. I pray that you so hunger and thirst for righteousness that only Jesus can give, that everything else pales in comparison. So I ask you again, what are you seeking? Verse 39 He said to them, Come, come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying. And they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. Jesus invites them to join him. He doesn't say where he is going or what they're going to do. He simply says, come and see. This is the first of many tests of faith. How real are you guys? Are you just seeking out of curiosity? Are you hopeful that I make it big and that you can come along on my coattails? Jesus is asking them to trust him. Come and see. They desire to be with Jesus. These two disciples to have uninterrupted time with him, to listen, to ask questions, to inquire about who he really is. And these two disciples didn't delay any further. They left John and went with Jesus. Verse 40. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Now, Andrew is one of the two who were with John the Baptist. And I've been asking you to wait a couple of times. Who is this other disciple? I think the evidence suggests that it is the Apostle John, the writer of this gospel. Do you remember where you were? (coughs) Excuse me. Do you remember where you were when the Twin Towers fell? I know you do. In the same way, the Apostle John clearly remembers what hour of the day it was, the 10th hour, when he and Andrew followed Jesus. You see, John, he just didn't announce his name. He wanted this book to be about Jesus, not himself. And so he left himself unnamed. He really is the same as John the Baptist, who said of his relationship to Jesus, he must increase and I must decrease. Verse 41, he first found his own brother Simon, that is Andrew, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. Again, what, what after must have been a very impactful, a highly impactful time with Jesus, Andrew's first priority is to go find his brother. If John the Baptist is the first evangelist, then Andrew is the second. For you see, he goes to Peter and proclaims that Jesus is the Messiah, Now, before we move on, note how Andrew proclaims Jesus. What does he say here? He says, We have found the Messiah. But who really found who here? Let's go back to verse 36. Listen to how the Apostle John writes this. And he, that is John the Baptist, looked at Jesus as he walked by. I love that John makes it sound like Jesus just happened to be walking by. That would be like saying, I just happened to have all of my chores done when Ohio State football comes on TV. There's no coincidence here, my friends. No coincidence at all. It is no mistake that Jesus is walking by. He is intentionally going back to the one who baptized him. Jesus is ready. Remember, he's ready to start his public ministry. And he needs to build out, in kind of the the terms that we would use today, he needs to build out his team of people. So he goes back to the one who baptized him to find disciples who had most likely heard of him because of John's prophecy. And they would be more ready to act. But the bottom line is this. Jesus is seeking These two disciples. He's the one that found them. Jesus is the one who goes out of his way. Jesus is the one who goes back to them. Friends, let me tell you. When we come to Christ, we all think we have found him. I found him. But in reality, he finds us. Just like when Jesus just so happened to be walking by John and his disciples, he just so happens to be found by those who seek him. Listen, there is no seeking by the saved without being first sought by the Savior. And thanks be to God, he has sought after us. Verse 42, he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. It's almost like Jesus is saying, So you are Simon, the son of John. You are the one my father has been telling me about. But when normal custom would expect Jesus' next words to be, I've been looking forward to meeting you. Or, it's nice to meet you. Shake hands. What we see instead is that Jesus gives him a new name. How unusual is that? Can you imagine meeting someone and getting tagged with a nickname almost immediately? I know I would be like, whoa, we just met. Let's slow down with the Benji Loo's and the Benny's and the Louis, Louis, and the Lou Bob's. Let's just, I need a little bit more relationship context here, okay? But you see what's different here is the one who is speaking to Peter is not. A normal man. In naval aviation, it is pretty common to get a call sign. For those of you who don't know, I I flew in the navy for about eight and a half years. Not everyone gets one. I I didn't get one. They tried to call me. If anybody, if anybody's, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand in a a church like this. But if you're familiar with The Simpsons, I forgive you. No. (laughs) If you're familiar with The Simpsons, kind of the the goody two shoes neighbor is a guy called Flanders, and they tried to call me Flanders. It didn't stick. It didn't stick, but um, there are some good ones. It usually comes from either a play on your last name or, frankly, something stupid that you did. So a good friend of mine, his last name is Puffer. He was Puff Daddy, right? Um, a guy that showed up in my squad squatters, about 6'6", 300 pounds on a good day, um, wrestled heavyweight in college. He was BDA, big dumb animal. Um, See, these are the things you can get away with in the Navy. It was a different time, it was a different time. Um, And then the the last guy, this is my favorite. So, um, a a good dude, but he, uh, when he showed up at the squadron, um, he had gone to MIT, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. It's a very prestigious university in Boston, Mass., actually Cambridge, and um, a suburb of Boston. And he, um, you know, I think he was just trying to build a little bit of credibility with the other people in the squadron. So fairly early in the conversation, he would let you know that you know I attended MIT. So of course his call sign became Mitzi. And that stuck with him for as long as I knew him. So but what Jesus is doing here is more than giving Simon a nickname or a call sign based upon who he is or what he's done. Jesus is giving Simon a new name based upon what. He will become. Peter would become one of the most prominent of the apostles, a leader amongst equals. Jesus is giving Peter a new identity. Simon's new name is an outward expression of really of what is beginning to happen to him inwardly. Peter isn't the only one who got a new name to go with his new identity. So did Paul. He was Saul until Peter... Like Peter, he met with Jesus on the Damascus Road. And he was given a new name, Paul. And from that experience, an inward change that it represented. He he wrote this to the Galatians, chapter 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loves me and gave himself for me and in like kind he wrote to the corinthians the church in corinth in second corinthians chapter 5 verse 17 if anyone is in christ if anyone is in christ he is a new creation the old is gone and the new has come identity change and realignment is true for all who respond to the call of christ But we don't need to get new names. Jesus is just using Peter here as an object lesson for us to understand what happens inwardly when we respond to the call of Jesus. Well, that concludes scene one. We've seen Jesus call three disciples, Andrew, Peter, and John. In scene two, we'll see Jesus call two more disciples to himself. Verse 43. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Jesus finds Philip. No mystery here. No subtlety like when Jesus just happened to be walking by Andrew and John. No hidden meaning with questions like, what are you seeking? Jesus tells us that, John tells us that Jesus goes to Galilee. He finds Philip and he says simply, follow me. Jesus calls us in different ways, doesn't he? To some, he simply and directly says, follow me, and we come. But to others who need a softer touch, he asks, what do you seek? And he spends the night with you, answering questions, assuring unsure hearts like he did with Andrew and John. Jesus knows who you are, and he knows how to call you. Some of us hear that call when we are young. Some when we are old. Some while living moral lives and some while living immoral lives. Some resist and put off the call before they finally relent. And some respond the very first time they hear, like Philip did. Verse 44, now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathaniel and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Nathanael says, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Some might think this is kind of like a small-town football rivalry. Or you could interpret this as a Galilean. So these two guys, both Philip and Nathanael, Uh, are from Galilee. It could be that this Galilean here is looking down upon the lowly flyover country of Nazareth. This is the hick town. It's kind of like saying, can anything good come out of Pueblo? Now, I've been in Colorado 10 years, but it didn't take me nearly that long to figure out how much Denverites look down on Pueblo. Man, that poor town is like the butt of every joke. I'm telling you. But in the context of what Philip has just said, that he has found the one that all of the prophets and all in Moses and, in effect, all of the Old Testament has prophesied about, and that he comes from Nazareth. I think it more likely that Nathaniel is thinking to himself, "The Scriptures don't say anything about Nazareth. Nothing good is supposed to come from there. Don't you know that, Philip?" Philip's answer is excellent. Come and see. Come and see for yourself. It's exactly what Jesus said to Andrew and John the day before. Come and see. Picking up in verse 47. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus calls Nathanael a true Israelite, a genuine son of Israel. Perhaps Jesus was comparing Nathanael to the father of the Jews, Jacob. Jacob. Jacob's story is not what you would expect for a hero of the faith. I mean, after all, his name means he cheats. It's what Jacob means. He cheats. And indeed, he lived up to his name, sadly. He stole his brother Esau's birthright by deceit. Now, in contrast to Jacob, Nathanael was a genuine. Honest man with a truth-seeking heart. There was no guile, no deceit in Nathanael. He genuinely wanted to know what was right and true. And while Jacob may be the father of the 12 tribes of Israel, in his earnestness, Nathanael embodied more of what it means to be a Jew than Jacob did. Verse 48, Nathanael's reaction is priceless, He says to Jesus, how do you know me? As in, we've never met before and you speak as if you see into me. But also, who are you? What is going on here? The ground under Nathanael's feet begins to shift as he begins to realize that something good may come out of Nazareth after all. In verse 48, Jesus removes... All remaining questions from Nathaniel's mind, along with any steady ground that he had left underneath his feet with what he says next. Jesus says, before Philip even contacted you, before he got to you, I saw you under the fig tree. We've all been in the situation where someone says, oh, it's nice to meet you. Your mother has told me all about you. It's great to meet. But this isn't that. This isn't Jesus saying, I knew of you, Nathanael, and had heard that you are a true Israelite without guile or deceit. This was Jesus, the God-man, deity fleshed out in humanity, the one who has always existed, the one who is not bound by time or space or height or depth or width, the one who exists outside of all boundaries, the one in whom all things were made, including the vastness of all the planets, stars, galaxy, and spaces, saying to this single individual, I know you, Nathaniel, and I see you for who you are. Nathaniel responds to Jesus' call immediately, Rabbi, you are the son of God, you are the king of Israel. On the evidence of Philip's testimony and now his own personal encounter with Jesus, Nathanael professes that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah, the Son of God who will be the eternal King of Israel, promised by Moses and the prophets. This is a full reversal of Nathanael's statement about Nazareth. So we've seen Jesus call five men, Andrew, John, Peter, Philip, and Nathanael. Each man responded to Jesus' call to faith. Now, why would they do that? Well, practically speaking, Andrew and John were disciples of John the Baptist and had been waiting for him, and the others were relatives and acquaintances and were from that same area of the country. They had heard the teaching of John the Baptist as well. But friends, that can't be it. Sane people don't just drop everything and follow another man. No, they responded to his call because they had met with a man unlike any they had met with before. In our concluding two verses, Jesus will begin to reveal who that person really is. Over the course of the book of John, Jesus will make seven I am statements. We'll have the joy of of seeing those statements, revealing who Jesus is. But to his disciples, he provides a sneak peek, a preview of what is to come so that they will be reassured in their decision to follow his call. So let's see what he says. And your outlines now, the caller. In verse 50, Jesus affirms Nathanael's declaration, and we might even read this verse as a declaration, not a question. I bet your translation has it as a question, but I think it's actually probably better to read it as a statement, meaning, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? Because of your faith, you will see greater things than these. And in the greater things that Jesus has in mind, he foreshadows those things, is Verse 51. Truly, truly, I say to you. Now, the word we have translated truly is amen. It's amen in the original Greek. So Jesus starts off with two amens. It's like like he's saying, I most solemnly and assuredly say to you. We should probably pay attention. This is what he says. You will see heaven opened. And the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now for you Bible scholars, you may be reminded of Jacob's dream. Or excuse me, Jacob's ladder, which he saw in a dream in Genesis 28. Jacob is resting, I'll just give you some context here. Remember Jacob, the father of the Jews, is a deceitful man. He's stolen Esau's birthright and he tricked Isaac. Out of it. His mother comes to him. Rebecca comes to him and says, you need to get out of here because Esau is coming for you. In fact, the only way that Esau is consoled is that he knows that he's going to kill you. You need to go. So Jacob flees and he's resting in his escape from Esau, the brother that he had deceived and stolen stolen the blessing from. Jacob is dreaming. He's got, I mean, he's in a bad spot. He's got a rock for a pillow. He's dreaming, and he sees a ladder going from the earth all the way into the heavens. And he saw angels ascending and descending, ascending and descending. From Genesis 28, verses 10 through 12, Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones from the place, he put it under his head, and he lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set upon the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Jacob sees a ladder, with angels ascending and descending on the ladder. Note, that's the same exact language that Jesus uses here, angels ascending and descending. That's what Jacob saw. He saw the angels going up and down the ladder between earth and heaven. But listen to what Jesus says. You will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Not on the ladder, but on the Son of Man. Now listen closely to what God says to Jacob next. Verses 13 and 14, Genesis 28. And behold, The Lord stood above it, that is the ladder, and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. And you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. So you see this ladder was the way God came down to earth and blessed Jacob and his family. It would be the way that he would bless all the families of the earth. It would be the way that God would keep his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And now we have Jesus of Nazareth, Joseph's son, the carpenter, saying, You will see heaven open, and the angels of God ascending and descending On the son of man, on me, he says. He is saying that he is the ladder to come down to man. He is the link between heaven and earth. He is the mediator of a new and better covenant between God and man. He is both the son of man and the son of God that will reconcile men to God. He is saying that all the blessings promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, especially that all the peoples on the earth would be blessed through them, is here, now, fulfilled in himself, Jesus. And he calls himself the Son of Man. This is a term used in Old Testament prophecy to describe the Messiah. It's used throughout Ezekiel. Over 90 times, but I think a prime example of where it's used is in uh, Daniel, chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. I'll read those for you now. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. This Son of Man, this is the title that Jesus uses more frequently for himself than any other title. In fact, he uses it 76 times in the Gospels. Well, what does he mean by Son of Man? Well, Nathaniel has called him the son of God. This reminds us that he, that Jesus is deity, that he's the second person of the Trinity. Nathanael has also called him the king of Israel, or you could say the son of David. This reminds us of his unique relationship with the Israelites, with the Jews. But Jesus responds to Nathaniel not with either of those titles, But he refers to himself as the son, not as the son of God, or as the son of David, but as the son of man. This is the title Jesus uses to show that he is the representative of the entire human race. It is the title that is most closely associated with what he came to do. And that's why he used it so much. And what is it that he came to do? to suffer and die in the place of sinners, taking the sin of all who would ever believe on him and reconcile them to God. He is the Son of Man. And so we see the caller, that is Jesus, confirm what his disciples have already begun to believe. Jesus is not like John. He's not another prophet calling them to repentance. He's not even like Moses, the prophet of Israel he is the Messiah the chosen one the anointed one who will redeem his people Israel he is the son of man and the lamb of God who would take away the sin not only of Israel but, it would all, uh, but all who would ever come and see and believe on him if you're here this morning I want you to know Jesus is calling he's calling you He's asking you, what are you seeking? He's asking you, come and see. And he's saying to you, follow me. There is no other way to God except through Jesus. Hear and heed his call, I plead with you. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, we thank you for the son. We thank you that Jesus isn't only just your your son, that he isn't also just the the king of Israel, the son of David. He, He is the son of man, our representative, the representative for the entire human race, that if we would just believe on him and obey his commands, we might be saved, Lord. We thank you for him this morning. We thank you that you've magnified him through your word. And we just pray that you would be with us this week. Walk with us. We know you're with us. Remind us that you are with us and that you know us. It's like Jesus knew Nathaniel before he ever actually saw him with his eyes. So you know us and you know what we need. Lord, we love you and we thank you.